Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Hey, Dr. Jana. Hello, Joe. Welcome to episode 46 of the Science of Sex podcast. And hello, hello to you, too. You look lovely, by the Do way. Do I? You know, wow. some days you come in here a little raggedy, <laughs> but today, I, I, I noticed you even said, is everything okay? Because I looked at you like... Yeah, you looked at me like, <laughs> as if I had two heads, and you just kept staring at me like, as if wow. there's like something really wrong oh. and apparently you were only staring because nothing was wrong nothing was wrong yeah wow. i mean if people do not know dr jana you live you live hard uh, you know as they say <laughs> I you live you, hard what, what's that thing coming in hot you come in hot a lot i don't know if i live i mean when you say i live hard it might sound like i have a hard life which i don't oh, okay no no not a hard life but maybe you go all out you're always 100 percent on the dial so that's true although guess what i stayed in Two nights in a row this week. All right, so that explains it. So you are refreshed for our guest today, right, Dr. Jana? I am, and our guest today is Dr. Gerolf Rieger from the University of Essex, mm. although he's originally from Austria, and I know him because he was a postdoc at Cornell while I was still finishing my PhD, and oh. we actually published a paper together that he was a co-author on. And so I know Dr. Rieger relatively well wow, so it's okay. really nice to have a friend on the show so is this like nepotism do i mean is he totally qualified nepotism. to be is he <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah the only reason he's on the show is because he's a friend yes okay. no other reason <laughs> no and what is this uh, study gonna be about is it the gonna, twins is this the twins gonna, one yes we're gonna talk about twins who share or don't share the same sexual orientation because some of them even though they're identical share sexual orientation and some do not and so we're gonna talk about some studies that he and his team have done trying to figure it all out. All right. Can't wait to talk to Gerolf. And we also have some breaking news. We have a spo- another sponsor to the Science Sex Podcast. We do have a new sponsor, and that is Lalo, the sex toy company that makes lots of different kinds of vibrators for boys and girls, for vaginas and penises, and uh, for anuses, too. For They like to make vibrating things. Okay. Have you used vibrating things in I your life? N- you a, still... A, just a dishwasher. Does a that di- count? <laughs> I don't think that counts. That doesn't count. Yeah. Okay, no. You get that and lots more at Lalo.com. Speaking of lots more, there's more <laughs> Dr. Jana to go around. You have another event coming out, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do. And this time, we're not going to have an event at the Hacienda Villa this month. Okay. And instead, I'm giving a talk as part of a Think and Drink New York City series. Wow. I mean, you got me on drink. I don't know what the think part of it is, but what is it? You know, sometimes while you're drinking, you can also think. Okay. I know often the two don't go together, but hopefully people won't get completely wasted so that their thinking abilities are completely obliterated. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's a series of talks, like sciencey talks, that happen at bars in wow. New York. Yeah, they were started about a year ago, and I just got connected with them recently, and they asked me to give a talk. Okay. They're on busting myths about the female orgasm. And it's happening on November 20th at the bar called Subject, which is on the Lower East Side. And you can get your tickets either by going on their Facebook page, Think and Drink NYC, or going to our website, scienceofsexpodcast.com. And we'll have that as information in the current episode recap. All right, Dr. Jana, before we get going here on the Science Sex Podcast, I want to talk about this article that's getting a lot of traction online. A lot of my friends in the transgender community and people who support the transgender community have been retweeting this New York Times article several times. I'm sure you've read it. Yeah. Does it have to do with Trump? Of course it does. Yes. So the the headline is transgender could be defined out of existence under the Trump administration. Yes, I heard that. I mean, it's it's so silly that they're 
trying, but they're trying. Why are they trying so I, hard to be I assholes? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to sound... It's so unnecessary. That's it's what like I mean. So okay. Yeah, uh, but I'm anyway. going to take a deep breath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get a little excited. Like, and again, we try not to be political on the show, but it's almost the, to the point where the administration goes out of their way to upset people. Sure. Does. But in this case, it, we're talking about something that is scientifically bonkers. Yeah. Like scientifically inaccurate and quite frankly ridiculous. All right, let's get people up to speed. So okay. here's the deal. The Trump administration is considering narrowly defining gender as a biological immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth, the most drastic move yet in the government-wide effort to roll back recognition and protection of transgender people under federal civil rights law. Right. You can legislate around things. You can say, you know, trans folks exist, but we are not going to take that, right, as a grounds for whatever special rights, you know, that's one way that you could take an approach if you wanted to prevent a particular group of people from accessing rights. But this is a really crazy idea for how to go about it is basically by saying that they don't exist. Right. Yeah. And obviously there are all those kind of moral issues around rights and, and um, protections and all that. But the basic scientific problem with all of this is that's not how sex is defined. Well, gender is defined. Right. So, so first of all, actually, I've been reading different accounts of this. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, some of the reports say they're trying to legislate sex as right, this, right. in this very narrow way, as you said, as determined by genitals at birth. And other reports say they're trying to legislate gender. Okay. Or they're trying to define gender as this. And those two things are actually quite, quite different. All right. So, so the layman, to me, when you say mm -hmm. that, wow, that sounds exactly like the same thing, gender and sex. It's no. not. In psychology, we talk about these two separate constructs. Sex is defined by several factors, only one of which is the genitals at birth. The external genitals at birth that you can kind of see right away, but that's not all the genitals, right? We have internal genitals. There's ovaries and uterus and, you know, you don't necessarily know whether the testes have descended or not. The scrotum might be there, but the testes may not have descended, right? So there are parts that are inside the body. And so sex is actually defined by a combination of chromosomes. Are you an XY okay. or an XX or some other combo, maybe just an X or XXY, there, right? Uh, then hormones and receptors for those hormones. So you can have, for example, an XY person. Mm -hmm. So they have the typical male chromosome. But if you don't have uh, testosterone in your body or you don't have the receptors in the body to bind to testosterone. So let's say you do have testicles that are making testosterone because you have the Y chromosome, but for some reason you don't have the receptors in the brain to bind to that testosterone. What happens in those cases is people come out looking very much like women because they don't have these receptors. That's another factor. So you have chromosomes, you have hormones, the hormone receptors, and then you also have the genitals, both the internal and external parts of you know, penises and vulvas and vaginas and then uh, ovaries and testes. All of these things determine sex. Okay, that's the sex part. So sex is, seems to me is a little more of a physical thing. There's more, it's more yeah. of a tangible. Yeah. Well, it's a tangible physical thing, Okay, which is much more complicated than what they're trying to legislate. So even if they were trying to define sex as something that is determined by your genitals at, at birth. birth, even that's not accurate. Even for this very tangible physical thing, even that is far more complicated. Now, of course, for the vast majority of people, these factors, the chromosomes, the hormones, receptors, and, and uh, external and internal genitals, they all kind of line up along either male or female. 
but there are maybe something like maybe 1%, depending on how you're counting some of these differences, whether all of these factors have aligned in the exact same way along male-female lines or not, you get maybe something around 1% of people who don't fall very clearly into this Complete sex. sex, male versus sex, female. Okay, so that's sex. And that's just sex. Okay, now please describe what gender means. <laughs> well, gender is a very large construct that's like a psychosocial construct okay. of the kinds of roles and behaviors and identities and presentation and personality traits and all of these other things that come with people who are of the male sex, of the female sex, or any other sexes mm -hmm. that we might recognize right. that exist in our culture. So gender is this very broad term, okay. and it can encompass a lot of different things. What we're often talking about with trans folks is gender identity. Mm -hmm. So the identity that you as a person have of whether you are a woman, a man, or some other gender... And very often those identifications that are available to you are going to depend on what culture you've been raised in and what are the available terms for you to be able to identify with. There are many non-Western cultures, for example, that have other gender categories aside from men and women. Like they call them third genders, right? And, right, and and so if you grow up in a culture like that from a very early age, you might find that your identity falls under that category, and with that identity is determined by a lot of different things. The biological sex is only part of that. Most people who are intersex people, right, we're talking about the biological part of, of the issue is, you know, whether everything lines up along male or, or along female lines, the people for whom there's some level of difference in, in those factors, they are some level of intersex. Got it. A person with an intersex body in terms of the biological physical, tangible thing that we're talking about, if one has some level of difference in how all of those things, chromosomes, hormones, hormone receptors, and genitals line up, that's an intersex body. With an intersex body, you can grow up to identify as a woman, a man, a trans man, a trans woman, a gender non-binary person. You can Your gender identity can be any number of things. But in fact, the vast majority of intersex folks end up identifying along the binary line of gender. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, but the one thing I, I, could, I could sort of understand the confusion for some people, because even if you look at filling out an application or mm -hmm. a, 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 any kind of ID, it doesn't say gender, it says sex, sex yeah. which it's, is incorrect from, well, no, by your definition, though. But, but no, it depends on what you're asking about. If you're asking about a body, mm -hmm. then sex should have options of male, female, or intersex. Okay, so that's what it should say for when they're asking for sex. If you're asking about biological sex, it should ask about male, female, or intersex. And if you're asking for if, a gender... If you're asking about gender, then it's cis woman, right? Yep. Non-trans, cisgender woman, cisgendered man, trans woman, trans man, gender non-binary, gender fluid, you know, any any other number of identity categories that people okay. might, might identify with. So why different people end up identifying a different genders or gender that's not aligned with the sex that they were assigned at birth, mm -hmm. right? We still don't quite understand, but it clearly does have something to do with probably hormones and biology that are affecting our brains in different ways or at other times of development compared to when the bodies are created mm -hmm. in the womb, right? So you have testosterone is important, for example, for creating male typical bodies in the womb at a certain time of development. But then testosterone is also important for developing some certain personality characteristics that might be more along the male typical spectrum or a male gender identity. But that's at a different time of development. Right. And so you have most 
transgender folks, the the people who grow up to identify as transgender or gender non-binary of some sort, non-cisgendered folks, they're not intersex. Right, because that's sex. The, that's the, a sex their part. Sex, but their sex, biological sex, is usually pretty typical aligned along either the male or the female line of chromosomes and hormones and hormone receptors and genitals. Yeah. They don't have intersex bodies, the vast majority of them. They have either typical male or typical female bodies, but their brains, their identities mm. are saying that they identify, they feel as a different gender. And so this whole attempt at <laughs> defining gender as defined by genitals, I mean, it's so far. It, which from- is crazy because you're, you, I mean, obviously you know what you're talking about, but is it, wouldn't you think there's someone like you in the administration who can explain, I mean, not literally like you, but someone, no one like, no one me, like you, but there's someone who can explain it because you did, you know, without blowing smoke up your ass, you did a very nice job of breaking that down for someone like me who's an idiot. So why isn't there someone like that helping there explaining this to people? I mean, I don't think they care about scientific accuracy at all. It's all about ideology driving these decisions, and they're trying to find the cleanest, easiest, most comprehensive way of excluding. They, they've decided, right, mm-hmm. they, their, their starting point is we're going to exclude transgender from existing. Yeah. And how do we do this in the way that's most e- effective and, and efficient and comprehensive? Yeah. Let's just define them as not existing. All right. Well, <laughs> you kind of know how we feel about this, but if you feel a, a, yeah. a certain way, you can show the way you feel about it by voting. And the midterms are coming up, folks. So, yes. And, and that's the way vote. we can get involved because obviously we, we can't convince those. Well, I, don't, I was going to say idiots. Those people. <laughs> we can't we can't convince those people how to think. You don't think they're going to let me into the White House and, and Health and Human Services to educate them no, on as, these things? As cool as you are, Dr. Jana. <laughs> I don't think you could find your way to get into that place. I don't, I don't get it. But yeah, again, right. another administration, who knows? But we will keep people up to date with this, but obviously a very important issue. And hopefully this was just one of those leaked memos that every once in a while come out that don't really come to fruition. I really do hope so. Let's hope that. And I guess this is a good time to remind everybody that these issues are very much, you know, civil rights and human rights are very much alive and well as issues being decided. And so if you have friends in the trans community, if you know people in that world, be a good friend, educate everybody else. What we can do, right, is spread the word, boost the signal about some of these things coming out and inform and educate and rile people up so they go and vote and they change some of these things happening. Great. Well done, Dr. Jana. Before we continue with the Science Sex Podcast, a quick word. We want to remind our listeners that for any non-Lelo vibrating toys, they can go to other sponsor, adamandeve.com, and get all of their other sexy needs met. And uh, we have a special code that gives you a discount and some deals, some hookups, right? <laughs> yes, we do. It's science. Science, 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 science. S-C-I-E-N-C-E, right? Just like you would spell Oof, science. Very, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> just like most people would spell mm-hmm. it. Uh, so yeah, so if you, you check out adamandeve.com and you buy something... We hook you up with some perks, like you get like uh, DVDs, a mystery gift. So it's a pretty good deal with Avenue. Free shipping and half off almost any item. That's pretty good. So one way to support our show and all the work that we do is by going to adamandeve.com or going to layla.com and using these discount codes and getting your sexy needs met that way. All right, so I know we have Gareth standing by. What, what are we going to talk to Gareth about? It's, it's about the twins thing, right? <laughs> the twins. The twins. The twins. Yes. yes. We're going to talk about, I don't know how much you know genetics. 
Uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen all the X-Men movies. Does that, does that count? No. Not much. Totally counts. I mean, obviously, I know genetics are passed on through generations and through family members right, and all right. that jazz. And you, you know how twins work. Yes. And there are two types of twins. Fraternal. Uh-huh. And identical. Yes. And what's the difference between the two? Uh, identical, they look exactly the same. Fraternal, they do not. <laughs> okay. I mean, how about the genetics? What's... Ooh, that I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know what the, well, I don't know the genetics difference. I know they don't look alike, the fraternal right. twins. Right. So why don't they look alike? What, how, what percentage of genes do they share? 50%? For the, for the fraternal? Yeah. And the identical? 100. 100. Woohoo! Yeah, you I'm aced proud. this genetics test. I got a gold star. All right. Good. <laughs> and how about siblings who are not twins? Uh, 25%? Really? Why? I don't know. I, I did less than 50. What is it? The percentage of genes that you share with your sibling has nothing to do with when you were conceived. Oh, okay. Has to do with, are you made of the same? Uh, sperm and egg? Sperm and egg. Yeah. So identical twins are made of the same sperm and the same egg. Uh-huh. And very, very early on in the process, once this one baby has been formed, basically what happens is that sperm and egg that are now a zygote, right? They, yeah. They formed into one cell and made one baby to be mm -hmm. and very early on the first couple of days that one cell splits into two separate ones yep and that's why they're identical yep. and they share 100 percent of the genetic material got it right how about fraternal twins is it 100 percent too 75 percent 65 percent 55? Oh my God, you're adorable. Joe, I, I think you've been drinking too much, uh, so you don't even want to think. My, my brain hurts. I didn't really, I, I honestly, didn't, I, I didn't bring my number two pencil, Dr. Jana. <laughs> you look like your brain hurts. Yeah. Okay, so for everybody out there whose brain is hurting right now. Yeah. Yes, which happens a lot when you listen to this podcast. <laughs> I hope not. You have regular siblings, right, are made of a different sperm and a different egg each time assuming we're talking about the same parents, yep. but it's still a different egg and a different sperm, and that means they're sharing 50% of the genetic material with each other. Okay. Identical twins, on the other hand, are made from the exact same egg and the exact same sperm that all of a sudden, for some reason, nobody quite understands why, ended up dividing itself into two entities very, very early on, and then they continue developing in the same, in the same womb, right? Yep. Fraternal twins are made just like regular siblings, from us, two different sperms and two different eggs, they just happen to happen at the same time. Oh. So instead of the ovary in the mother's side, instead of it releasing one egg that it gets fertilized, then gets fertilized by one sperm, it somehow ended up releasing two eggs, and each of those eggs got fertilized by different sperm. Wow! And they just happen to happen at the same time, but the the amount of genetic material that is shared between them is the same as is shared between just regular siblings. So it's 50%. 50%, exactly. Right. The difference between the two is that one shares the uterine environment. The womb at the and same, all that the, Yeah, yep. the mm -hmm. womb at the same time. So whatever hormones may have or stressors or whatever might yep. happen during that time in the womb is shared with both of those babies that share 50% of genetic material, whereas the in intrauterine environment might be different for the non-twin siblings. But the identical twins share both of those things, right? Okay. Okay. So. So now I'm eligible to be an OBGYN. After oh, this? absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and a geneticist, a behavioral geneticist, in fact. Oh, yes. cool. All right. I think you should should apply to do a postdoc. I'll, I'll update with my Carol. Twitter profile. <laughs> <laughs> so now, <laughs> after this uh, short interruption. Yes. <laughs>
Can you please tell me about Garolf? Yes, I can tell you about Garolf. So Garolf has been studying why and how some of these twins who are identical, right, who share 100% of their genetic material and share the womb, and they also share a lot of different factors after they're born because everybody treats them the same because they look alike and all that. Like, How is it possible that often one of them says they're gay and the other one says they're not gay? So Mm. he's been testing, uh, is that really the case? And if so, how might that be? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And Dr. Georg Rieger is originally from Austria, and he got his Master's in, of Science in Biological Anthropology from the University of Zurich, and then a PhD in Personality Psych from Northwestern University here in the U.S. He then was a research fellow in the Department of Human Development at Cornell, where I was a grad student at the time. And then he joined the psychology department at the University of Essex. Dr. Gerald Rieger, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shana, for having me on your show. We often like to start our interviews with asking people how they ended up studying what they're studying. So is is this me-search for you, Gerald, the sexual orientation stuff? It's an interesting question because I haven't started out in that field. Originally, I studied biology, and uh, then I ended up studying cats for a while. Cats? I didn't know you and, studied cats. Yeah, cats, yeah. <laughs> And uh, while I did research on cats, I stumbled over this book that looked into the evolution of human behavior. And they had one line in there saying, homosexuality, we can't explain it. So let's move on to the next topic. And I thought, this is really (laughs) lame. (laughs) Um, I wrote a few people and everybody said, talk to Michael Bailey at Northwestern. And this is how it started. Oh, and that was for your PhD when you were deciding what you were going to do for your PhD or? Exactly. Yeah, that was uh, before my PhD that I decided I want to do research on sexual orientation. And everybody said Mike at Northwestern is the one to do the PhD with, especially if you want to have some biological take on it. There's a lot of work out there for decades, if not centuries now, that has more of a psychoanalytical approach to sexual orientation. But I wanted a different approach. And Mike really was and is the best person for for doing this. So this is how it happened. Okay, so at this point, I think no one in the scientific community doubts, or I'd be surprised if there are many people who do, but uh, yeah, very few people would doubt that sexual orientation is to a large extent genetically determined, right? And, And twins in particular are a really cool and easy to understand source of evidence that that's the case. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. We've had Mike Bailey, we've had Kazi Rahman, also from uh, the UK, talk about uh, sexual orientation. But just kind of remind us maybe some some of these numbers around twins and the different levels of genetic similarity between twins and how that plays out with twin sexual orientation. So the twins are certainly an interesting field to study, not just sexual orientation, but anything where you want to figure out how much is it due to genetics, how much is it due to other factors that some people are like this and other people are like that. So let's say some people, most people are straight, as we know, but a few people are gay or bisexual and uh, how much of that difference is due to them having different genes. And overall, we know that about 30% of that variation of that difference in being either gay or straight or bisexual is due to genetic differences between people. So it's not 100% genes what makes us 
Some of us gain, other ones uh, not. But genes play a big role. The important bit is that when you look at twins, at identical twins in particular, if one twin is gay, there's a, a good chance that the other one is also gay. So that would speak for a genetic contribution to their homosexuality. But then if you look closer, it's actually the case that if one is gay, the chance that his twin brother is also gay isn't actually that high. I think it's less than 50%. Mm. So if one twin is gay, uh, then the chance that uh, his twin brother or her twin sister, if she's female, is is also gay or lesbian is is lower than the twin being straight to me that always was mind-blowing you know we we do if you come from my side of 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 the story we do accept the fact that genetics play a role when it comes to uh, the formation and expression of sexual orientation but these twins they show us that there must be people at least these twins uh where Whatever makes a difference cannot be in their genes. And uh, I've always been fascinated by that. Right. I mean, on one hand, we we know that the genes that do play a role because as you go up, how much genetic material is shared between two people, the rates of concordance, the fact that, you know, if, if one is gay, the other one is gay as well, that increases. Right. So among fraternal twins who only share 50 percent of the genes, that likelihood of concordance is lower than among identical twins, right? Exactly, yes. And then yes, also, so that alone tells you something is genetic. But it's not and, 100% uh, even among the 100% perfect. identical twins. Yeah, so I mean, if it were all genetic, a simple way of putting it, if it were all due to our genes, if you have a gay identical twin, then his twin brother or her twin sister must also be gay. And that just isn't the case. If I remember the numbers correctly, only about something like 25 or 30 percent of identical gay twins have their twin be also yeah. gay, right? Yeah, I think 30 percent is about the right, right percentage. Uh, so just to repeat this, if uh, the first twin is gay, there is a 30 percent chance that the co-twin is also gay. So with everything, like you said, we talk about the hundred percent. How is it that part of the hundred percent wasn't the, their sexuality or the the way they they lean? That's that's wild. Uh huh. Exactly. Carol, did you figure <laughs> this out? I hope you did. If he figured that out, he'd be you know getting a Nobel Prize oh, okay. right now. Okay. I would love to. Yes. To me, it's mind blowing to to know that uh, there are identical twins where their sexual orientation is different. That in itself doesn't mean that there couldn't be other twins where it's all determined by their genes, right? The one is gay, the other one is gay. It's all due to the same genes. But the fact that we have these discordant twins, that we have these identical twins, where one is gay and the other one is straight, suggests that at least for some of these couples, their genes don't make all the contributions to their sexual orientations. Right. Oh, that's a great point that, that uh, you brought up, that sexual orientation could be determined by different things in different people. So for some people, it could be right. all genetic, mm -hmm. whereas for other people, maybe the genes are contributing part of the, the influence and other factors are contributing the other part of, that, of, of, of the right. influence. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes the whole picture more complicated and makes it difficult to explain if I stumble over it uh, every so often is, uh, you know, what's true for one person doesn't need to be true uh, for the other person. And in general, yes, we know genetics play a role when it comes to our 
sexual orientation, but uh, it's it's not the same story for every single person. And these twins with discordant sexual orientations point exactly that out. Right, right. And now, over the last year or two, you and your team have published several papers looking specifically at these twins who are discordant. Identical twins, 100% of the genes shared, but they are discordant in terms of their sexual orientation, with one saying, I'm gay, the other one saying, I'm not gay, I'm straight. And you've been looking at some other things that indicate sexual orientation. You've been looking at things like childhood and adult gender nonconformity. You've looked at their sexual arousal patterns, like what their penises and vaginas are responding to when they're watching different kinds of porn. You've looked at their fingers and how long their index versus their ring fingers are. So tell us a little bit about this research. So I need to point out, and guys, you need to promise me that you have this name on your show. So this is work done with my, from a PhD student, Tuesday Watts, and I'm, I'm very proud of uh, what she's achieved because the truth is, coming back to my story and my background, that the twin research that we're doing now is something I wanted to do already 15 years ago, and we just couldn't get it off the ground. So I'm so glad and pleased that Tuesday was finally able to do it. All right, so Tuesday Watts and you and some other folks in your lab did a lot of this research yeah. together, right? Yes, and the, the important bit here for us was, you know, we, we had all these discussions already about how these identical twins can differ in their sexual orientation. But most of that past work that has looked into these differences uh, actually just relied on self-report. And as you know, uh, self-report is an issue because uh, people are not always able or willing to fully tell us mm. who they are. And nobody's suspicious if two twins tell you they're both straight because being straight is the maturity. But because we know that homosexuality does run in families to a certain degree, if one twin says he's gay, but the other one doesn't say so, then, of course, it raises all sorts of questions, mm -hmm. Mark. You, you know, is, do they both really have the sexual orientations that they tell us? Is it possible that maybe one is just not out yet or right. just does not know yet? For that reason, I've always been interested in, in getting some other measures out of my participants other than them just telling me who they are. Okay, so let's break these down in order as you mentioned them. Let's talk about the genital arousal first. You bring people into the lab, showing them some porn while you hook them up to these devices that will measure how aroused their penises and vaginas get. Yeah, exactly. So they come into our lab. We are not with them in the room. They do this all in, in, uh, in privacy. But the, the guys put little rubber bands around their penises. They're fancy rubber bands. They're filled with uh, an indium gallium mix. So it can be wired into a computer. And if a guy sees a video that he likes, uh, he gets aroused, the, the rubber band expands and we get a signal. It's very, it's very easy, a telling signal on our computer screens that shows us whether a guy has gay or straight arousal. With women, it's more complicated. They insert a device that's very, very small. It's smooth. It's transparent. It's like uh, tampon it's more size. complicated. Like tampon yeah, size. It's tampon yeah, and shaped. It's as Everything about women is more complicated, yeah. I would say. <laughs> to make it simple for the listeners, what it measures is a vaginal blood flow. So if a woman gets more aroused, more blood gets pumped into the inner walls of her vagina, 
And we pick up this change of blood flow as an indication of her arousal. Yeah, and this sort of makes sense that it, the same process happens for both men and women when they get aroused. What happens is blood flows into the genital area. It just gets expressed differently with penises getting an erection that is very obvious for everyone to see and for the little gauge to pick some up on. Some more than others, Dr. Jana. Yes, true, some more than <laughs> others, but the process is the same. You have yes. blood flow into that area, and same happens to vaginas. It's just not as easy to measure that. But we've, yes, we've figured out this little little tampon-sized <laughs> device that will pick up on really the, the changing color when more blood comes oh. into that area. And Gareth, how long are these rubber bands on the guy's penises? Because this whole time I'm wincing, just imagining a, a, like a rubber band from Staples around my wiener for too long a period. Like, how long are they sitting there? First of all, if you think it would be too small for you, I do have extra large. Oh, good. Thank you. So Thank you, you Gareth. Can, you can get the right shape for yourself. Okay. Secondly, it's for not longer than 40 to 50 minutes. Oh, okay which is definitely longer than what most people spend time watching porn, but it's not excessively. But okay. I don't know what you're imagining, Joe. It's not like a, a rubber band that is from tight staples. from staples yeah. or something yeah. that's tight around your, your penis. It's, yeah. I mean, relatively loose. It's not. It's sure. very elastic. Okay. Yeah, it's very elastic. So okay. it's not like your penis is going to fall off if you wear it. Listen, I don't want any like gangrene down there or anything like that. That's <laughs> my concern. I just want to make sure it's attached to my body. <laughs> I'm just checking this, but it's all part of the science, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jana. You know that. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> nothing's falling off. Nothing's getting gangrenous good. in these studies. Love I, it. I, I promise you that. Okay, good. Now that we have the devices down, so they measure uh -huh. this kind of objective gentle arousal to the different images that you're showing them, the different porn that you're showing them. Right. So what we do show our participants is very straightforward pornography. It's either a video of a man masturbating or a video of a woman masturbating. And they're very explicit with the idea that if you watch this, uh, there's a good chance that you will be strongly turned on to at least one of them. And this is what we, of course, want in the lab. And what are you finding? So you hook up the two different twins, one who says they're gay, one who says they're not gay, and... Are their genitals saying what they're yes. what they're telling you? <laughs> <laughs> so finally, to the to the results of our twin study, we do actually find that these twins are completely different in their sexual arousal in the way they describe themselves. So it's uh, the case that uh, the one who is uh, straight has straight arousal, the one who is gay has gay arousal, and there is no such thing as let's say the straight one not being so straight in his arousal. They are really distinct in their arousal. All of the twin couples you you had had this different arousal? They all had it. Uh, what we did find was that they were somewhat coordinated in how much they got aroused. Mm. So if the gay one got strongly aroused to pornography of males, then the straight one got somewhat more aroused to pornography of of females, so there was some similarity in how much they were turned on by the so porn. So some twins are just twin pairs, just hornier than other twin pairs. Mm -hmm. Exactly, right, exactly. Right. But there was no question that the straight one was straight and the and the gay one was gay. That's a clear pattern in males. And the amazing thing is, we didn't have that many twins to do that type of research because there aren't many of these twins out there. And no, not everybody wants to do this uh, sure. genital arousal research. It's not something that's everybody's cup of tea. So I think we had 10 male pairs mm. and still with 
them, we could find this huge difference just as with every other guy who's chaos straight. You know, they really differed from each other. There's no question in their arousal patterns that they are not different. So no bisexual men were involved in this? One of them said he was a little bit bisexual, okay. but uh, he looked just like uh, all the other gay guys. Okay. And of the female twins, there were a few more who uh, were bisexual, but still the majority were gay or straight. Even though the arousal of women is altogether more complex than the arousal patterns of males, still the female twins looked like what you would expect from any other woman who is gay or straight. Explain a little bit more what, uh, because as you said, uh, that this genital arousal in women is a little, a little different, more plays fluid. out a little, well, yeah. yeah, more fluid plays out a little differently than, than the male genital arousal. So explain what that is. Female sexual arousal is different than man's, uh, because with men, the results are so intuitive. If he's gay, he gets aroused to men. If he's straight, he gets aroused to women. With women, what we find over and over again is, uh, especially when she says she's straight, she gets aroused to everything that's sexual. She gets aroused to videos of men. She gets aroused to videos of women. She gets aroused to videos of monkeys having sex. She mm -hmm. just gets aroused to everything that's sexual. That makes it much harder for us to uh, determine a woman's sexual orientation by her arousal pattern uh, right. than what you can do with a guy. Right. It's what we call but category non-specific. Right. Yes. There's no yeah. one category that's that category gets their yeah that gets their vaginas going. <laughs> it's women's sexual arousal tends to be more in this case gender non-specific. But uh, lesbians differ a little bit, right? They differ a little bit, and we have seen this difference in the past. But it's become a very important part of research for me. What you find is that lesbians are a little bit more like guys in the sense that they get somewhat more aroused to their preferred sex, which are women, than to the other sex, which are men. And this is something where lesbians are just different from straight women and more like straight guys. They still get aroused to both men and women, but they, at least they show a preference versus straight women. Right. Don't do that. And your findings with the female twins kind of followed this pattern as well, right? The straight twins were nonspecific. They got turned on to both men and women, and the, the lesbian twins got turned on a little more to women than to men. Yeah, we did find this exactly with our female twins, as you say, the straight ones uh, got turned on by both and the lesbian co-twins somewhat more to women. In fact, I would say this difference between the straight twins and the, the gay sisters was a bit stronger than what we usually see in unrelated participants, but because we had such a small number of twins, I cannot say this with confidence, but right. it's quite amazing how we could find these very same patterns that we usually see in people within these twin pairs. Right. And you said that you had some bisexual sisters among the non-straight twins uh, on the women's side. How, what were their sexual arousal patterns like? Uh, the bisexual twins, female twins in our study, were close in their arousal patterns to uh, the lesbian twins. If I look closer at their arousal, I think it wasn't quite as the lesbian, so they weren't, they were in between straight mm -hmm. and, and lesbian twins, but they were closer to the lesbians than to the straight women. Cool. And if mm -hmm. you look at 
other women who are not twins, it seems to be the case that when they say they're bisexual, they're somewhere in between the straight women and the lesbians, as in this, yes, they get aroused to both men and women, but it's a little bit more to women than to men. Fascinating. So fascinating. Okay, cool. So we confirmed that, at least as far as objective arousal, sexual arousal goes, these discordant twins are really different on their sexual orientation. (laughs) (laughs) Then you looked at, what else did you look at? You looked at pupil dilation, right? Yes, pupil dilation is a, is a great measure for us because it's it's less in, intrusive, and uh, if you're interested in something, your pupils widen. It may be that you know all your attention means that you know you want to get all the contrast of the image in or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but your your uh, your pupils widen, and uh, that includes that if you're sexually attracted to somebody, your uh, your pupils become larger. And people must have known this for centuries because uh, you go all the way back to the Middle Ages and there are stories about be- beautiful women who had all these big pupils. Women mm. would put in belladonna all sorts of drugs into their eyes, make their pupils bigger and larger. Uh, because uh, if you then meet that person and she has enlarged pupils, the guy might think, oh, she's attracted to me, mm-hmm. right? So it, people always knew that uh, the pupils have uh, this response, but it's really difficult to measure. And until we had the fancy equipment that we have now, it was almost impossible to get a reliable measure of somebody's pupil to another person. Yep. So the eyes are the window to the soul and the penis, <laughs> apparently. And, and the vagina. And the vagina, yeah. yes. <laughs> we haven't found the soul yet, but yes. we know it's connected to the penis. Good. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying that. I love you. <laughs> yeah, and, and the one good thing about pupil dilation or, or widening is that you, you can't quite fake it. Right. You don't know. It's like instinct, right? Yeah. It's not under your conscious control. So you can because one other thing that you could measure with eyes is where are you looking and how long are you looking at that thing? Uh, But you can still control that. mm -hmm. Right. If, say, you're secretly gay and you have this hot man photo in front of you, you can be like, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at that. (laughs) Just move your eyes. Right. Just move your eyes. But as long as you're looking at it, Mm -hmm. your pupil is going to do what it's going to do and you don't have a lot of control over it. Yes, you're right, Shana, and in, oh, thanks God, somebody reads my papers. Uh, <laughs> this is exactly why why I'm so into these measures, uh, because it's much easier, for example, just to measure where somebody looks, but as you say, these people can still control this. Yeah. The pupils, that's you know, how much they widen. You can't, you would have to be a very sophisticated person mm-hmm. to know how you could control this. Right, right. And the same with your, your genital arousal. It's extremely difficult not to get aroused to something that turns you on just because you don't want to. And th- I mean, this is why these things have in the past, these measures been used as as light detectors, a lot of the equipment right, that we use point. now was actually developed in the 60s where, for less cool reasons mm-hmm. from today's point of view, which is to find people in the military who are gay and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to... Weed um, them out, not let them to, into the military, right? Yeah. So we profit from the fact that these measures have been developed back in the day to hurt some people, but obviously we... Tr- we don't want to do this. We're now. using them for for much, yes, for good, m- good 
purposes now. Okay, let's... Uh, the bigger good. The yeah. bigger good. Understanding sexual orientation, yes. Okay, so let's move on to the other thing that you looked at, which is kid photos. Yes, that's a really exciting study for me, too. Uh, so one of the research... <laughs> Joe's uh, face is like, what did... the hell? Yeah, I'm like, what are you talking... Kid photos? What? <laughs> please, please explain, Gareth. Joe, that you know, it's not that we put kid photos in the arousal booth and made sure that we figure out who gets aroused to children. Yes, yes. I don't not. think... We... Thank God. Dr. John is not very good at segues, so that's why she jumped into kids' photos and my mind just started going in another area there, so... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> we already mentioned childhood gender yes. nonconformity yes. Okay. and children's photos, and I just wanted to move on okay. to that next topic and talk about that. Please so. help, Gerolf. Explain. <laughs> Yeah, you just gave me a new research idea, but I don't think it will ever get <laughs> ethics. Good luck with that, that. yeah. Um, the kids' photos, as you say, are a really neat way of us figuring out uh, how a person was way back in childhood. And again, it's a way uh, where we don't have to rely on somebody's self-report, which is particularly crucial here because... A lot of people actually don't really recall how they were. Memory is a tricky beast anyway. We may not even remember how we have behaved a few days ago. But then to think about how was I as a child, a lot of people might stumble over that. And then especially if you take sensitive topics as in your gender behavior, maybe you don't want to recall that you have been a very feminine boy or a very masculine girl. Right. And then that makes the self-report even more problematic for us. Or if, if so, you were, if you are gay as an adult, you want to remember more that you were more maybe feminine as a boy yeah. or masculine as a girl than you actually were, right? Because that fits with your narrative of, it, yeah. of yourself as, as a gay person. Yes. It could go either way. Right, it right. could be, you know, if you're very comfortable in the gay community and you celebrate diversity, you may want exactly that. You will say, I've always been a very feminine little boy, for example. Or, or it could be if you're from a more conservative upbringing right. that you want to reject the idea and you say, I've always been like a straight guy. Right. So one way or the other, uh, it could be unreliable what what people remember. Gender nonconformity is, is an important kind of and a very closely related characteristic when, it, when we talk about sexual orientation. Exactly. So when it comes to gender nonconformity, when, what do we call gender nonconformity? It really means guys who are more feminine than most guys and women who are more masculine than most women. So their gender behavior doesn't conform with what you usually see in most people of their gender. And we do know from loads and loads and loads and loads of research now that gay men and lesbians and to some degree bisexual people are just more gender nonconforming than those who are straight. Mm. And we also know that this starts very early in their childhood. Right. And when I say early, I mean around age four or five, we can see distinct differences between those who become gay and those who become straight in their gender-related behaviors. Right. And so the question here then becomes, is this also true of these discordant identical twins, right? Is the twin who is as an adult gay were they more gender nonconforming when they were a kid compared to the gay who is now straight, right? Uh, this was exactly our aim to figure out if those uh, twins with discordant sexual orientations where one is gay, the other one is straight, if they follow that same path, which again, if they would do similar to the genital arousal, 
measures that we've used, it would suggest, you know, they truly differ in a way that most people differ who are gay or straight. And when we looked at the photographs from childhood into adulthood, there were two findings that stood out. The one is, yes, yeah, the, they differ as in the one who became a gay adult started to become more and more gender non-conforming during a childhood compared to the co-twin who became a straight adult. So that was like what you see most people. But that difference didn't happen quite as early. They kept being more similar to each other mm. throughout uh, all of their development. And, they started diverging uh, later not, in life? Uh, so yes, they started to differ in their gender and conformity somewhat later in their childhood than those who uh, were not from these discordant pairs. And when I say somewhat later, I think for those who were not discordant twins, we see this difference to happen around age three or four. And for the discordant twins, this difference, I think, was around age seven or eight. There was a difference in the difference. <laughs> right. And it's in addition to that, um, they never became quite, a, even as adults, they weren't quite as different from each other in their gender nonconformity than those who were not from these discordant pairs. So even though they were, let's say, two guys, co-twins, 100% identical in their genes, and not, I mean, somewhat different in their gender presentation or conformity, but not that different, and yet one is gay and one is straight. Exactly, yeah. If you put those two pieces of research together, it shows if we believe their genital arousal, they are clearly different from each other. Yet mm. there's no question. I have no question to doubt that their sexual identities are correct. Mm-hmm. Regardless of this, there's something about their gender behavior that makes them more similar. And uh, I haven't fully pieced it together, but my educated guess is that our gender behavior, how masculine or feminine we are, you know, there's something about it that can still be influenced by ourselves or our environment. And it's probably more difficult to influence our genital arousal in that same way. And what we think is because these twins grew up with each other. Mm. And most of these identical twins are quite close. So even if one ends up being gay and the other one straight, they are close to each other, right? And they, they, they see each other behaving and they can't help imitating each other to some level. Mm, right. And they're and already being dressed in the same clothes. I quite like this idea, if it's true, because it could mean that the straight one in such twin pairs wasn't opposed to adopting a little bit of, you know, the femininity that his gay brother displayed. Right. And, and vice versa. That's kind of cool. I kind of like that. The it's gen- a neat yeah. idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something romantic about it. There is something romantic yeah. about it. So finally, tell us about finger length ratio. Right. I think for most people, yes. it's like, what the heck? Okay, I understand penises and vaginas yeah. and that they can respond to different things differently. I understand you know, femininity and masculinity in childhood, but ring fingers versus index fingers? We have dozens of studies showing that the length of your index finger to your ring finger tells us something about your sexual orientation, at least in women. It's not so clear in guys, at least in women. Nobody knows the exact mechanism in humans, but what we think is going on is that sometimes during your prenatal development, so when you're still in the womb, testosterone influences some of us differently than others, and some of us get more masculinized than others. 
and that includes that lesbians probably get more masculinized in their in their prenatal environment than straight women and the masculinization doesn't just affect their sexual orientation but it also affects their fingers and what's going on is that there are androgen or testosterone receptors in your second and, and fourth finger and the more you get masculinized the longer your ring finger becomes your fourth finger and that means that the ratio to the second finger changes those of us who are more masculinized or more masculine uh, they have a lower ratio of the second to fourth finger than those who have been exposed to less testosterone. The important bit is now with the twin research that we've done, uh, that we could show in women that the lesbian had a more male-typical uh, second to fourth finger ratio than the straight sisters. And that suggests to us at least that for the women there could have been a difference in the womb that made a difference all the way up uh, into their adulthood as in uh, you know something happened in their early development something happened in the womb one was exposed to more testosterone uh, than the other one who was also in the womb and uh, that made the one who was exposed to more testosterone a lesbian and the other one became a straight woman right just so just to recap and and uh, sort of repeat this for people who are like, wait, I've never two heard four, of this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is going on? So it was, basically, it was too it was too complicated. No, no. Yeah. Well, it, that is just in general relatively complicated. Yeah. But I also want to just say it one more time for people. And so basically, we find that, and plenty of research, as you said, has found this that uh, men and women in general have a slightly different ratio of forefinger to the second finger, and that lesbians basically have a more similar ratio to the one of men right. compared to straight women. And this study is finding that that's true of the lesbian co-twins compared to their straight co-twins as well. And But we didn't see anything in men in this study. Very, very little, right, uh, Gerald? No, we don't, we don't see it in guys. Yeah. Uh, you usually don't find it in guys, which in itself has always been a puzzle because if you think about it, uh, why shouldn't be the opposite true in guys, right? That maybe the gay guy has more female-typical uh, finger ratios yeah. than the straight guy, but it's you don't find it. If anything, we found the opposite in our study. So I'm not convinced that fingers can tell us anything about sexual <laughs> orientation in men, but it does seem to tell us something in women. And so I think this wraps up nicely to the question of, all right, so what could be driving these differences? If it's not genes, because in, in these discordant twins, they're all identical, they share 100% of the genes, but they don't share sexual orientation, what could be driving the differences in sexual orientation? And we're just talking about, you know, for the lesbian sisters, it could be prenatal exposure to testosterone, but don't they share the same womb? Mm. And so they sh share that right. same intrauterine environment prenatally. So what the hell is happening? Mm -hmm. What are so far What's the best... What's going on? Yeah, yeah, what are our best guesses at this point about what these other factors, aside from genetics, could be? Yeah, I tell you what, I thought until recently the best guess is, but others might probably tell us we're wrong. Uh, so we do know that uh, genetically identical twins don't necessarily have a shared placenta. They can have different placentas. And uh, that means that any substance that goes to one twin in the womb does not necessarily end up in the other twin. Placentas have a certain control about 
what goes from the mother to the baby. And, and I think I read in the paper that one of the papers you wrote that about 30% of identical twins are thought to have different placentas, right? Yes, that's our understanding that around 30% of these twins don't share a placenta. They have different placentas. So all the nutrition, all other substances, including, for example, hormones from the mother to the, the babies could be differently controlled by these different placentas. Mm. So our current idea is, and it's pure speculation, that <laughs> These twins who are discordant for sexual orientation may have had different placentas and these placentas work differently. Mm -hmm. But that still wouldn't explain all of it. If, if, if let's say the numbers are around 30% of identical twins are concordant for sexual orientation, right? Then mm -hmm. you leave 70% who differ. Let's say that 30% of them are all the, all the twins who, sh who did not share a placenta. That still leaves about 30 or 40 percent of the twins who are discordant for sexual right. orientation and did not share a placenta. Yeah, it definitely cannot explain it all. You're right. You know, I've never done this calculation, but you're right. <laughs> you know, if it's true that that 70 percent of these identical twins are discordant for sexual orientation, if you start out with a gay one. Even if all of the ones who did not share a placenta, you account for them, you take them out of the equation and say, okay, 30%, that's why, because one got more testosterone through the placenta than the other one. Okay, that's why one's gay, one isn't. But then you still get about 30 or 40% of these twins who don't share sexual orientation. So what are, what are yeah. some other factors? Yeah. There's got to be more. <laughs> You're right. More. The truth is that I don't know what's going on <laughs> with these twins. Uh, one thing to consider is also that they may influence each other in different ways in the womb. And we do know, as far as I know, from a lot of work on rats and mice, that uh, the way the baby rats or mice are in the womb and the way they're placed in the womb has a different influence on, on the siblings. Mm. And who knows? I mean, these twins might be competing for nutrition, for example, in the womb, and that could affect one more than the other. And so you're still putting your money on prenatal factors. I haven't heard you mention anything about after <laughs> kids are born and what might happen to them after they're yeah. born. Yes, I do think it's something that happens very early because after all, we do see that they, they do differentiate in their gender behavior Early enough, uh, we do know that gender-related behaviors are, there is a strong biological contribution to it. I couldn't quite see for both for these twins as for anybody else who doesn't become straight, that there is a social reason behind it. It's not perceivable to me. <laughs> uh, I have not yet seen convincing evidence that we can make a person gay. And uh, the twins are actually even a better example for this because they are usually raised in such a similar way. They have the same caring parents who treat them usually the in same. a very identical way, in fact, in an overly identical way. And everybody else, not just and parents, still, but everybody who interacts with these and kids. And so does everybody else, right. right? I cannot believe the social environment has any effect on, on the different sexual orientations. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right, but we, I, I, maybe right. We, we yeah. Still, yeah, I want more evidence. I want more 
testing of, of the social environment. <laughs> what What's your take? Oh, what, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree, sense. but I think uh, there there has to be something around around the amount of flexibility that people have around their that main core, if you will, like the amount of sensi- the other stuff that you've been studying as well, like sensation seeking and curiosity and you know arousability mm-hmm. and social norms to what extent you might be mostly gay or mostly straight, but allow for something else to kind of jump in at, at times and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I agree with you that probably that main core of who we are attracted to mostly or greatly or most intensely is something that happens very, very early on, either genetic or epigenetic yeah. or biological prenatal kind of environment. I, I cannot rule out, Shana, given the other research you just mentioned, that uh, I could even go as far as thinking that some of our sexuality is conditioned and of course there are other people who study this much better than i do Mm. but when it comes to our sexual orientation i would be cautious with such assumption i can't quite see how it's conditioned right right. uh, in humans in these twins i can't quite see it either i wish we could study conditioning of this more in in humans Uh, but we can't be great (laughs) it would be great it would be awesome to study yeah absolutely (laughs) we can Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Joe, did you learn a bunch of stuff? I did. I learned that uh, I could, if you put your penis in a rubber band, you could figure out whether you're uh, turned on or something like that. That, that, was, that was one of my That's takeaways. That's your takeaways? Oh, one of my takeaways. <laughs> well, I'm so glad we had uh, Dr. Rieger on the show to teach Joe this very, very important thing about his penis. And uh, most men's penises. Not just, <laughs> not, not just right. my penis, yeah. <laughs> All the penises. <laughs> Dr. Gelfrieger, thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex thank podcast. Thank you so much. Big thanks. I really enjoyed this. This was a very different type of interview and made me smirk. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> it's really, it's it's fun. I really enjoyed it. You both do a lot of research, so it's it's a great combination of fun and, and serious business. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks so Carol. much. That was thanks fun. Yeah, that so was much fun. to both of you. Bye-bye. Take you. care. Bye now. Bye. What a nice guy that Garolf was. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, he's I great. can understand why you had a little crush, even though there was no like thing happening. I had a professional crush. Professional crush, yeah. Sure, sure. Smart guy. So that wraps up uh, episode 46 of the Science Sex Podcast. Dr. Jana, you know we have that website, sciencesexpodcast.com, yes, we where you get all the episodes. But you can also find out and, and connect to your Patreon page, correct? Yes, people can support our work through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Jana, And you can find all that information on the sciencesexpodcast.com. You can ask us all sorts of questions by emailing us through the website or at info at sciencesexpodcast.com. Podcast.com, and we will do another one of those Sex Question Palooza nice. episodes at some point and uh, try to answer as many of your questions as we can. And remember that one amazing way to support our show is to buy your sex toys from either Lalo.com or AdamandEve.com and use our discount codes. And of course, we always enjoy when you rate and review the podcast, no matter where you listen, Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, anywhere you go, throw some stars, give us reviews, and let us know what you think of the science of sex. And that wraps up episode number 46, Dr. Jana. Who do we have scheduled for number 47? 47 is Dr. Greg Webster, and he's going to talk to us about a new study that's really interesting that is looking at couples Mm. and how people's interest in casual sex predicts or affects their sexual and relationship satisfaction. 
in the couples. Interesting. This would be yeah. good for you. Yes, you can it would be a good few for things. me. I can't wait to talk about this. All right, Dr. Jana, I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.